tape I trust, Scott. <laughs> All of it, of course. Well, my friends upstairs will erase it, I'm sure. They're always looking out for me. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you tonight for the blessings of this life that you give to us. We thank you for the little things of life, and we're reminded tonight especially of how you take care of all the details that make it possible for us to live in this world. And we give you our grateful thanks that you watch out for us. We thank you for your providence and for the many provisions that we have. We thank you above all that we enjoy a relationship with you that is a positive one, that we have a right standing before you, and indeed we've been adopted into your very family. We pray you'd help us to appreciate that above all tonight, that we might value very highly that relationship and guard it, not let anything interfere with it. We pray, Father, you would give us the courage, the spiritual courage, to get rid of any obstacle that stands in the way of our relationship with you and our ongoing Christian life and testimony. We do ask that you would not only forgive us of our sins this night, but that you would grant us also the assurance that we have been forgiven, that we might live in confidence before you, because we have come into your very presence by means of the blood of Jesus, our great high priest. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, we're in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, and our lesson begins at verse 26 tonight, which is you know, tough material. We're going to be talking about apostasy and the unforgivable sin again, and there's a reason for that. But I would um, still like to go all the way back to the beginning of Hebrews chapter 10 and read for you, uh, to put this in context, read from the first verse, and I'll um, end our reading at verse 31. Hear God's word. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, not the very image of the things, can never with the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect them that draw near. Else would they not have ceased to be offered, because the worshippers, having been once cleansed, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance made of sins year by year. For it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice an offering you would not, but a body you did prepare for me, and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I am come, in the roll of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you would not, neither had pleasure therein, the which are offered according to the law. Then has he said, Lo, I am come to do thy will. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By which will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest indeed stands day by day ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, the which can never take away sins. But he, when he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, henceforth expecting his enemies to be made the footstool of his feet. For by one offering he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after he has said, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws on their heart, and upon their mind also will I write them. Then he says, And their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brothers, boldness to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by which way he dedicated for us a new and living way, through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and fullness of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and having our body washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope, that it waver not, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking our own assembling together, as the custom of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we sin deliberately after we have received the knowledge of the truth, 
there remains no more a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and a fierceness of fire which shall devour the adversaries. A man that hath set at naught Moses' law died without compassion on the word of two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment do you think shall he be judged worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God and has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and has done despot unto the Spirit of grace? For we know him that said, Vengeance belongs unto me, I will recompense. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And thus far the reading of God's word. The historical circumstances under which this book was written and which uh, provoked the author to set up his theological instruction that he might make exhortation that um, bears directly on the people now comes out with quite a vengeance as the author draws to a conclusion his uh, long discussion of the adequacy of Christ's sacrifice and the way we should live on the basis of it. Last week at the beginning of our lesson we talked about how theology and life have to be tied together and what kind of life is appropriate to those who understand the high priestly work of Christ and the all-sufficiency of his sacrifice. We saw three exhortations. Let us draw near with a true heart and fullness of faith, a life of prayer. Let us hold the confession of our hope without wavering. And thirdly, that uh, we provoke one another to love and good works and not forsake the assembling together. Those three things are characteristic of people who understand the work of Jesus Christ. And um, I felt inadequate after giving that lesson. I trust many of you would have felt as well that your Christian life didn't match up to those exhortations in the way that it should. But you see, the worst is yet to come. The author is not only saying things that should comfort us, but also show us how far short we fall the author is now going to draw a negative conclusion about the people to whom he's writing. And uh, so let's review the historical circumstances to see what I'm getting at, that they come out now in verse 26 very clearly. The author is writing, as you recall, to um, a mixed congregation, undoubtedly, but a congregation that has many converted Jews, those who have come to Christianity out of Judaism. And the temptation apparently is facing them very really to um, go back into Judaism, to compromise their Christian faith. And so the author has been theologically driving home the point that Christ is superior to everything the Old Covenant offered. He's superior to the Old Covenant prophets. He is superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses, the key figure of the Old Covenant. He's superior to the Old Covenant priesthood and the Old Covenant king um, as well. And um, having discussed the theology tied to that series of superiorities, the author drives the point home that if we fall back now into Judaism out of Christianity, there remains no more sacrifice for sin. He wants to talk about what we would call the unforgivable sin, or more generally called apostasy, Christian life. In verse 26, what he's telling us is that apostasy is a very real danger, and apostasy has dire consequences. Many people who do not understand the system of theology called Calvinism, or the Reformed faith, have the misconception that Calvinists, are Calvinists just because they don't worry about or don't think there's anything to be concerned about in the prospect of apostasy. Um, I learned many years ago, and now I kind of carry it with me, that when someone says I'm a Calvinist, that doesn't necessarily mean they believe the way I do in terms of the five points of Calvinism or covenant theology or the Westminster Confession of Faith, that often the term Calvinism is used in the Christian church to mean someone who holds this view once saved, always saved. As long as you believe in eternal security, you're a Calvinist. Even if you deny predestination and total depravity and you know the substitutionary atonement or limited atonement or what have you, um, the main point is that you hold once saved, always saved. Now, with that general conception of Calvinism, either the shallow one or having a broader view of Calvinism, but thinking still the heart of it is this eternal security, 
then the thought is that in Calvinist circles, it's hard to take seriously, or we don't take seriously, these uh, calls about apostasy, the exhortation against apostasy. Because after all, once you're saved, you have nothing to worry about. And so taking the popular conception of once saved, always saved, it would be appropriate to tell you, even though you're not going to like it, that that's a doctrine straight out of hell. Because you see, the popular doctrine is not once you are genuinely saved, which no one knows, um, except perhaps you yourself in terms of the inward testimony of the Spirit. No one knows till the end of your life, and only God knows the heart even then. But the popular doctrine is not once genuinely saved, you're always saved. The popular doctrine is once you profess salvation, once you profess faith, you can never be lost. And that is not true. And I know it's a little um, unnerving the first time we have to face that, or well, actually it's unnerving every time we face it, I suppose. We need to realize that professing Christian faith does not assure um, our place in the kingdom, heaven, unless, of course, the profession has a reality in our heart of hearts, which, if it does, will always manifest itself. Repentance will always be there. Um, and so I don't for a minute want to take away eternal security that's genuine eternal security, but I, I do want to take away what uh, the Puritans often called carnal security. Uh, distrusting in some kind of outward or fleshly act, some, something that we've done, you signed a decision card, you become a member of the church, you were baptized, whatever it may be, thinking from that point on, you may not be a real good Christian, you may be a carnal Christian, you know, you've heard that terminology, but you will truly be saved no matter what your life is like. That is not the case. That is not biblical. And it is the height, you see, of insensitivity to not warn the congregation and the sheep of the danger that exists of apostasy. So the author of this epistle does that. Apostasy is a very real danger. He says it has dire consequences, and he's emphasizing this now for the, oh, I'd say fourth or fifth time anyway. Let's go back in the epistle and see how repeatedly he gets to this theme. The very fact that it comes up so often tells you this is on his heart. Everything that he's writing keeps being focused in on this. Don't fall back. Chapter 2, verses 1 and following. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things that were heard, lest aptly we drift away from them. And it goes on, but I'll just leave it right there. Notice the threat that we might drift away from the gospel, the things that have been heard. Chapter 3, verse 12. Take heed, brothers, lest aptly there should be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief and falling away from the living God. Chapter 4, verse 1. Let us fear, therefore, lest aptly a promise being left of entering into his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. And you can continue in chapter 4, but the theme is there, the threat that we might not press into the promised rest of God. It is possible that we'll fall short of heaven, he says. And then, of course, the well-known passage in chapter 6, verses 4 and following, for as touching those who were once enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit and tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then fell away, it is impossible to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to open shame. And so here you have it in chapter 2, in chapter 3, in chapter 4, in chapter 6, and now in chapter 10, he comes back to it. The threat that we might drift away, we might fall short of the promised rest, that we might lose the benefit that we had presumed to have in our professing Christ. He says, For if we sin deliberately, or willfully, depending on how you want to translate it, if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins, but rather a certain fearful expectation of judgment and a fierceness of fire which shall devour the adversaries. The author becomes very explicit now, he says, if you apostatize, if you deliberately sin against the truth, the only prospect there is for you is the fiery judgment of God that devours adversaries. And so we need to take some time and discuss this. Who are apostates? According to this passage, 
What do apostates do? I'd like you to come up with this in your own words. Okay, they willfully turn away from the truth of the gospel. This language, if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, um, can be minimized and it can be maximalized too. Because if you stop and think about it, on one interpretation, we're all guilty of that, aren't we? We all sin willfully against the knowledge of the truth that we have. Just think, and I, I won't cause any embarrassment for myself or you by discussing what the details are, but just think to yourself, what you, of one of your besetting sins and the agony you've had over it and the guilty feelings you have about it. Part of the reason you feel so guilty is you know that what you, let, I'm just making this, maybe it's anger, you know. If, uh, if you show a short fuse, uh, you know that you're not supposed to do that. And so you read this verse and say, well, I've received the knowledge of the truth and and even knowing that it was wrong, I willfully did it. It's not like I just accidentally became angry. You see, now that would be interpreting this in a maximal fashion to say that virtually any sin makes you guilty of falling away from the living God. That's not what the author is saying here. We're going to contrast um, what he's speaking of to a condition described in chapter 5, verse 2, which we can turn back to. Very comforting passage, verse 5, I'll begin at, uh, excuse me, chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. For every high priest being taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, who can bear gently with the ignorant and erring, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. High priests deal with sinners. Jesus, especially, is the great high priest, according to chapter 4, verse 15, is touched with the feeling of our infirmities, of our weakness. And the author speaks of those who sin in, with ignorance and waywardness. The, the high priest bears gently with the ignorant and the erring. There are different ways of translating that. But clearly, we have one kind of sin that comes from, if you will, spiritual weakness. And that is what I'd like to believe is true of all of us, myself, tonight. That when we sin, even when we feel terrible about our besetting sins, it comes from our weakness. That doesn't make an excuse for it. What that means is we feel badly about that. We don't wish that were the case, even when we do it knowing that it's wrong. That is different from what is being described now in chapter 10, verse 26, as sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. There is a kind of hard-heartedness and provocativeness and irremedial character to the kind of sin being discussed in verse 26 of chapter 10. Apostates sin deliberately, demonstrating a radical rebellion against the gospel. Radical. Radical, one, because it's unqualified. It's not just that uh, see, someone could say, Dr. Bonson, you know, you rebel against the gospel every day, and I'd have to say guilty. That's true. All of my sins, in a sense, are rebellions against the gospel. But they're not radical rebellion against the gospel. That is unqualified. Now, how, what qualifies my rebellion against the gospel when I sin every day? What qualifies it is that when I have it drawn to my attention, either by the Holy Spirit or sometimes by a Christian brother, by my wife, whatever it may be, I feel terrible about that. I don't like that. I ask God's forgiveness. And so it is rebellion, but notice it's rebellion what? That I acknowledge in repentance is coming from what? My weak spiritual condition. And so Jesus deals gently with me. Praise God. Jesus deals gently with the sinner who is sorrowful over his or her sin. But there is a radical kind of rebellion that doesn't come from weakness of spiritual character. That comes from rather strength not good, positive, to be evaluated in a commendable way, strength, but a kind of deliberate saying, I know that it's true, I know Jesus is the Son of God, and I just, pardon the expression, don't give a damn. I don't, and I'm going to do it anyway. That kind of radical rebellion 
that says, I know the truth, but I am not going to live according to it, leaves you without a sacrifice for sins. You see, the apostate sins with a set purpose. Um, this will be overdrawn, but the contrast could be put this way. It's one thing for me to fall into sin. It's another thing for me to say, I deliberately want to sin. You get up in the morning and you say, the thing that I love most of all is offending God. I will not live according to the gospel. Okay, I'm overdrawing it. We see there's a difference between that set determination to rebel from the heart, from the radix, from the stem, to do everything possible to indicate your desire to live contrary to the truth. And someone who says, I know the truth, and I fall short of it, and I fall short of it, but I keep pushing, I keep pushing, and I'm sorry for my falling short of it. The apostate sins against the light. Notice chapter 6, verse 4, what we read there. As touching those who were enlightened, they tasted of the heavenly gift. They were made partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. You see, they were in a position of real privilege. We're not talking about some weak, erring Christian here. We're not talking about somebody who didn't know better. We're talking about somebody who even knew the power of the age to come, the miracles of the Holy Spirit. And yet they turned against the gospel. They fell away. That is a radical rebellion with set purpose against the light. If you want to see the background in the Old Covenant to this distinction that I'm drawing, turn to Numbers 15, verses 27 to 31. Numbers, the 15th chapter, at verse 27. I'll read verses 27 to 31. And if a person sins unwittingly, then he shall offer a she-goat a year old for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for the soul that erreth when he sins unwittingly before Jehovah to make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him that does aught unwittingly for him that is home-born among the children of Israel and for the stranger that sojourns among them. But... The soul that does anything with a high hand, whether he be homeborn or a sojourner, the same blasphemes Jehovah, and that soul shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of Jehovah and has broken his commandment. That soul shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be upon him. Just for fun, how do your various translations treat this expression sinning unwittingly in verse 27. What else do we have as far as an English translation? Sinning unintentionally. Sinning through ignorance. Anybody else have a different translation? Maybe we all carry most of the same Bibles. But I thought that would be interesting to see. It, You know, it's it's difficult to know exactly how to put it in English, but the point is that that is set over against the person who sins with a high hand. High-handedness, deliberateness, um, explicit rebellion in the sin. It says here that the person who despises the word of God and blasphemes Jehovah should be cut off. That should help us because Jesus is later going to talk about blaspheming the Holy Spirit, right? Um, the Old Covenant then already drew a distinction with respect to those um, who could be forgiven and atonement could be made for their sins because they sinned unwittingly. And those for whom there is no more sacrifice for sin, according to verse 31, those who despise the word of Jehovah and break his commandment are utterly cut off and their iniquity is upon them. There can be no uh, sin offering made for such people. And so the author of Hebrews uses this kind of language when he says, if we sin willfully with a high hand, deliberately, if you will, we deliberately sin after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sin.
the apostate is someone who once professed obedience to Jesus Christ, but now openly repudiates Christ. Because he was identified with the people of God, he was brought within the sphere of divine blessing. But having professed obedience to Christ and having been put within the sphere of divine blessing by being identified with the people of God, you have her, a brother or a member of the church, who, according to 1 John 5, sins a sin unto death, for which there is no sacrifice for sin anymore. His iniquity is upon him. In Mark 3, verse 29, in the well-known passage where Jesus speaks of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, it's called an eternal sin. It shows a disdain for the work of the Holy Spirit and a hardened hostility to the truth. Who was guilty of the sin against the Holy Spirit there? The theological infants, people who were struggling to grow up in the Lord? No, the leaders, the religious leaders, the Jews who were supposed to know the truth, and they hardened their hearts against it. You have to remember, this is not a sin of ignorance. It's a deliberate sin. And what our passage brings out, this is one of the most helpful passages in explaining the others when you're going through this with people, is that this is a deliberate sin against better knowledge. So what we learn from the passages I've referred to, and now this one in particular, is that not everyone who is within the sphere of God's covenant blessing, not everyone who is a member of the church, is truly a believer. Paul said that of Israel, didn't he? Not all Israel is of Israel. Not all who have the name Israelite really have a heart like Israel of old. They aren't right with God. And I think this is, um, it's certainly a scandal to the Anabaptist conception of the church. The Anabaptists say that the church should be a pure body, only believers in the church, and that's why they won't baptize infants thus the name Anabaptist. They baptized over again because they didn't accept the established church's baptizing of infants because we have no way of knowing if infants are believers. But you see, it's not just that they don't believe in infant baptism. We mustn't think it's just the question of baptism with the Anabaptist churches because they also went on to say of adults, we must be sure that you are pure and true, that your baptism really counts. But the Bible tells us that though we shouldn't willfully admit an adult to the church who isn't a Christian, that we should expect that it is the case that in the covenant community, and that is a definition of the church, the community of God's covenant, there are those who are under the wrath of God. They are covenant breakers, and yet under his covenant. This leads to another mistake with respect to the sacraments, especially with respect to the sacrament of baptism, we need to understand that the covenant of grace is not always gracious because God does not have any covenants which are unqualifiedly covenants of blessing. Covenants are, by the very nature of the beast, the very nature of the case, a covenant contains blessings and what? Cursings as well. Covenants are two-sided. If you live according to the covenant and show faithfulness, of course, it blesses you. But if you rebel against the covenant, does God ever have hands that are tied? And he says, well, it's a covenant of blessing, so I guess I just have to bless these rebels. No, God is not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, he shall reap. And if those who are within the sphere of covenant blessing rebel against God and have evil hearts of unbelief, they come under the curses of the covenant. You see, a lot of people would like to say conceptually, well, I guess they just really aren't in the covenant at all. But that's not the answer. The answer is they are under God's covenant and they are cursed by it. Now, how do we know that is the way to conceptualize it? Baptists, of course, would just be popping up right now. You know, they'd, they'd hate what I'm telling you. Because what they'd say is, no, when you have someone who professes to be in that covenant relationship and is a member of the church and isn't, then they really aren't in that covenant relationship. But you see, our answer should be, no, they really are in that covenant relationship and it's really going to damn them that they are. Now, how do I know if that's the way we ought to see it? Well, I'll give you what I think is the prime illustration of that. Jesus served the Lord's Supper to someone that he knew was an apostate, didn't he? Jesus served it, remember. We're not talking about somebody in the age of the New Testament church 
that you might say because of their human fallibility and lack of insight to the heart of men, you know, they make the mistake of serving the Lord's Supper to an unbeliever. Jesus, the Lord of the covenant, served what? The Lord's Supper, the meal that testifies to his blood, which is intended to what? Save sinners. He served that to someone whom he later called in the meal, the son of perdition. Was Judas a member of the new covenant? There's a good question to put to, to fellows in their theological exam because it will tell you a lot about them. Was Judas under the new covenant? Well, if he wasn't, why did Jesus serve him the meal of the new covenant? You see, again, it's not some human mistake. Jesus knew Judas's heart, and he served him the meal anyway. The new covenant does not mean you automatically are saved. The new covenant curses people as well as blesses people. Granted, it's much better than the old covenant, and all of God's covenant dealings have the intention of blessing. But God is not mocked again. His hands are not tied. And when people rebel against the goodness of God, he will judge them for it. And so we have those who are within the church today who are not truly believers. 1 John 2, verse 19. John speaks of those who went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that they all are not of us. If they really were of us, they were of the same character with us, John says, they would have continued in the Christian faith. But they went out from us to make manifest that they really didn't have that heart. And yet he says, they were with us. They went out from among us. And yet they were not of us. Not all Israel is Israel, right? Not all who are in the church genuinely belong to what the church represents. The parable of the sower in Mark, the fourth chapter, and elsewhere in the Gospels reminds us that sometimes the seed of God, the word of God, goes out and falls on shallow ground. Now, it's on shallow ground, but it springs forth just like the seed that is on deep ground. And although I don't profess to be a farmer, I understand this pretty well, that when you look at that which is on shallow ground and that which is on deep ground, for the first few days of its growth, you can't tell the difference. It just looks like normal plants growing up. But what happens is that if it's on shallow ground, it only grows for a few days, and then, of course, it dies out because no root can take. And there are people in the church that, you see, you look at them, and outwardly, they look like everybody else. We shouldn't get in theological hysterics over this. That's what we should expect. That's why Jesus tells these parables, to help us understand. Sometimes people look like plants that are growing, but there's no root to them. And so Jesus says, he who perseveres to the end shall be saved. The only way that I know about any of you, although I wish all of you well, and I pray for you as your pastor, and I believe your professions of faith, but you see, I have to tell you that if you should turn against Jesus Christ next week, if you should start falling into sin for which you are not repentant, I will not hesitate eventually to draw the conclusion that you are not really of the Christian church, that you were among us, but your heart really wasn't with us. And how will I know? And, of course, how will you know about me? Pastors apostatize too. In fact, it may scare you how often it happens. He who perseveres to the end shall be saved. That's the only way you know. Remember Demas? Remember Simon Magus? Remember the virgins of Matthew, the 25th chapter? Remember Judas? They all look like they were members of the covenant community. But they weren't. And I think the passage that really drives this home has always been helpful, not that it's not um, a threatening passage, but helpful to understand this theologically, is Matthew, the seventh chapter, verses 21 to 23. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, speaks these well-known words. I'm going to read verse 20 just to um, put this in context. Therefore, by their fruits you shall know them. 
Now he says, Not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Right there, Jesus says, an open profession of him, and that is the Christian profession. That's the heart of the Christian profession of faith, that Jesus is Lord. And he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father. And now listen, what's the will of his Father? Our charismatic friends need to hear this, and I, I don't mean to pick on any group, the Baptists or charismatics. This is a lesson for our hearts, too. But he says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy by thy name? And by thy name cast out demons? And by thy name do many mighty works? Which is a word for miracles. I don't think they're lying here. What good would it do to lie to Jesus? He knows. They did cast out demons. They did do miracles. They did prophesy in his name. And Jesus says, And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Lawlessness, iniquity. Not doing the will of my Father who is in heaven. All of the wonderful outward deeds that you have done in the eyes of men that make you seem religious, make you seem, in fact, a leader among Christians, are nothing if Jesus doesn't know you. There are some who profess the name of Jesus and who do mighty miracles who do not belong to Jesus. Now again, I know it's a disturbing message, but you need to hear it, lest you have that carnal security I warned you against at the beginning of the lesson. You must not presume that everything's all right with you because you signed a decision card or you've been baptized or you're a member of a good, strong church or whatever. You must not ever presume that God will have to save you. Once professing salvation does not mean eternally saved. Again, that's right out of the pit of hell. The idea that if I make profession of faith, I can't be lost. You can profess faith and be lost. First, you can't really be regenerated and lost. Praise God. That if your heart is changed, then you will not sin deliberately against the gospel. You will not go out from the Christian church. You will persevere to the end. And our confidence is in God, isn't it? That that work that he has begin, begun in us, he will perfect until the day of Christ Jesus. God doesn't begin a saving work. He doesn't begin any work, as a matter of fact, and give it up. God's not like what dispensationalists sometimes portray. And, you know, plan A, that doesn't work. Let's go to plan B. Let's go to plan C. No, what God intends to do in creation and in redemption, he accomplishes because he has the almighty power to do it. We need to remember that the truth of Calvinism, you know, rooted in the sovereignty of God, does have that comforting application that just because God is sovereign, I can be sure of my salvation because it rests in his work in me. Nevertheless, those who have been incorporated into the Christian community, those who have experienced God's blessing, those who have even done wonderful works in the name of Jesus Christ, who then slip away or who have hearts that are hypocritical and do not do the will of God, who, uh, the Father who is in heaven, will slip away into reprobation and in their repudiation of the gospel will never be renewed again. They will take their stand with those who called for the crucifixion of Christ. You remember that the people who crucified Jesus a week earlier had done what? They extolled him. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they crucified him. There are people who do, that was a historical event, there are people who spiritually recapitulate that in their lives. They extol Jesus, profess faith in him, then they want to crucify him again. That happens. They publicly confessed allegiance to Christ. But now they renounce their baptism. They renounce their profession of faith. Apostasy is a very real danger. The author of Hebrews in chapter 10 tells us that if we reject the sacrifice of Christ, we will be left with no sacrifice at all. For Christ's sacrifice nullified the Levitical system. I've already um, telegraphed to you in previous lessons where I'm going with this. In historical context, the apostates about whom the author is writing were people who wanted to fall back into Judaism in particular. And what he has told them in terms of the theological middle section of the book here 
Because there's nothing left in Judaism to go back to. There is no more sacrifice for sin. Because Christ, having come a high priest who offered himself as the sacrifice and sat down to the right hand of God, has totally put out of gear anything having to do with the old way of being right with God. And so verse 18 in chapter 10 has already said, Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. And though some commentators want to deny the connection, I believe verse 26 picks that up. If we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. Fall back into Judaism, there is nothing there. There is no sacrifice for sins acceptable to God. And I do believe that this applies to apostates outside of Judaism, but historically this is applying specifically to those who want to go back to the Jewish system where there is no sacrifice for sins. Those who will not have Christ's sacrifice will have none at all. And that makes verse 18 very interesting. In a sense, verse 18 has a covenantal thrust because it can indicate blessing, it can indicate curse. Think about it. There is no more sacrifice for sins. That's a great blessing for those who as unbelievers come to Jesus Christ. They know that they don't need anything else. Jesus has once and for all done it. There is no more sacrifice. But you see, it has a, its downside. The other, the, the curse side is those who will not come to Jesus don't have any other option but judgment. And that's exactly what our author says in verse 26. There remains no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and a fierceness of fire which shall devour the adversaries. What prospect remains for apostates? The fearful prospect of judgment. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Don't presume to stand before God without the protection of Christ's atoning sacrifice. It's a fearful thing to come before God. The fear of God. Is that a Christian virtue? Should we fear God? How many little ditties have we heard that tell us, no, we shouldn't be afraid of God? John Murray says it is the height of blasphemy to suggest that we shouldn't fear God when we have reason to fear God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And the only reason the fear of God is translated into reverential law and obedience in our lives is because not only are we afraid of God's judgment, but we also have an advocate who stands up for us, whose blood has made peace with God for us. The author speaks, this is a terrible expression, I mean terrible in terms of what it should do to us, the fierceness of fire which shall devour the adversaries. Fierceness of fire... In Greek, you need to understand the genitive construction can be understood as um, the fury of fire, or if you will, fiery zeal. It could be translated, fiery zeal. There is a fiery zeal that shall devour the adversaries. With that understanding of the Greek, turn to Isaiah 26, 11, because you'll see the same kind of expression used. Please turn tables at this time. Hard to turn pages with things on your thumbs, by the way. Jehovah, thy hand is lifted up, yet they see not, but they shall see thy zeal for the people and be put to shame. Yes, fire shall devour thine adversaries. The fire of God's zeal shall devour his adversaries. Turn to Zephaniah chapter 1. Some of you in the congregation will remember we had a preaching series on Zephaniah. Zephaniah 1, verse 18, speaking of the day of the Lord, neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of Jehovah's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy. The word in Hebrew is zeal. His fiery zeal. God's fiery zeal for the purity of his name will devour his adversaries. So it says in the prophets, and now the author of Hebrews brings that to bear here. For apostates, they have no option but to be devoured by God because they are his enemies. And now he goes into an, oh, one other word about apostasy. Repentance is the only hope of those who appear to have apostate, uh, who have appeared to have apostatized. You worry that maybe you've committed the unforgivable sin, then repent of it. And if you repent of it, it wasn't unforgivable in your case. 
I'm playing with words here, but do you get the point? If you are repentant, you haven't committed the unforgivable sin. You haven't hardened your heart to such a point that it's irremediable. And so repentance is itself evidence that one is not guilty of the hard-heartedness of genuine apostasy. One of the things that should worry us when we see Christians fall into sin is that they continue in it without repentance. It's the lack of repentance that gives the hint, perhaps the evidence that we should take, that people are not truly born again. They are not persevering to the end. Okay, now the author tells us in verse 28, A man that has set at naught Moses' law dies without compassion on the word of two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment, do you think, shall he be judged worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God, has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and has done desperate unto the Spirit of grace? The Mosaic penalty for transgressing the covenant is being referred to here, and what should be of interest to those of us interested in the question of theonomy and and the law of God is that the author just takes it for granted that the Mosaic law is still binding, doesn't he? His argument requires that. Because if the Mosaic law is something you can dispense with, then he's lost the foundation for his a fortiori conclusion. If he says, look, you know in the Mosaic law such and such, and therefore how much more in terms of the New Covenant, But you see, if the Mosaic law could be dispensed with, if it's just something that might hold and might not hold, then, of course, the threat to apostates in the New Covenant might hold, might not hold. I mean, he would lose the whole foundation for his argument if he didn't assume the validity of the Mosaic law here. He says the Mosaic law put a man to death without compassion, without mercy an aspect of civil law that we're losing sight of because in our society we don't do that. We have mercy on just about everybody. Sentences are shortened. People get out with good behavior. Things which are capital crimes according to God are not treated as capital crimes according to the law of our land and so forth. But according to the Mosaic law, one example is Deuteronomy 13.8. I don't have time to read it for you, but you can write that down. Deuteronomy 13.8 indicates that your heart shall not go out to this person. You shall not show mercy. When a person has committed a crime against the Mosaic law, he was to be executed without mercy. Does that sound horrible? It's not. As you see, if the civil law shows mercy, who ends up showing the mercy? Is it God who knows the heart, who can render mercy, Correctly? Uh-uh. It's the judge at the bench who does what? Becomes someone, the Hebrew expression, who looks upon the face. What we call as a respecter of persons. He looks at, to take an example that will communicate to our society, he looks at a white man and says, well, I see you're really sorry for murdering that person. Looks at a black person and says, oh, you wicked individual. He looks upon the face. He's a respecter of persons. Or, more crassly, and this kills me, but um, it's a question of he knows someone who knows someone who knows someone who wants a favor for this person. The Mosaic Law said the person who sins in this way must die without mercy. Then your society learns the lesson. And that really is a sign of the mercy of God, that in showing us temporal exacting of his punishments, he warns us that on the day of judgment, I will do the same. There is another day of judgment coming, not just the day that you stand before your your peers in a court of law, but there's a day of judgment coming where I will not show mercy. And so it is, in fact, one of the signs of God's mercy toward us that he lets us learn that in our civil affairs that we not have to go through this eternally. Nevertheless, the Mosaic law said a man should die without mercy, and the author says, of how much sorer punishment do you think Shall he be judged worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God? He reasons from the lesser to the greater. The old covenant people had the promises of God, but they didn't have the fulfillment of those promises. New covenant people have the promises and their fulfillment, and because they live with greater privilege, they bear greater responsibility. How much more are you guilty in the days of the New Covenant for sinning against God. 
And three things are done by the apostate according to this verse. First, he he speaks of those who have trodden underfoot the Son of God. But that language itself is almost painful to read, isn't it? Here are people who walk all over Jesus, is what he says. They tread Jesus under their feet. Of course, that's a figure for what? The greatest contempt. That's exactly what the Jewish leaders did to Jesus. Uh, We're running out of time, so I'll just give you the passage. Luke 22, verses 70 and 71. At the trial of Jesus, the Jewish leader says, Well, then, they say, Well, then, are you the Son of God? And he says, You have spoken well. I am. And then they say, What further evidence do we need? And they crucify him. They go to Pilate, have him crucified, but the point is, that was it. They would not have him be the Son of God. And so those who reject him now are put in the same category with the Jewish leaders who crucified Jesus. They have trodden underfoot God's Son, the one who claimed to be the Son of God. Secondly, they have counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing. The blood of the covenant? Where is the blood of the covenant also spoken of in the New Testament? What might this be a reference to? Well, of course, historically, the blood of the covenant is the blood Jesus shed so that we might be in covenant with God, a saving covenant with God. But where do we have the language of the blood of the covenant applied in the New Testament? Doug? The Lord's Supper, right. In 1 Corinthians 11, which we will look at real quickly, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 25, 27, and 29. I want to point out a couple of things. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 25. In like manner also the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The blood of the covenant is what we drink in the Lord's Supper, symbolically. But nevertheless, what that points to is Jesus' blood shed that we might be in covenant with God. Verse 27, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat the bread or drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Verse 29, For he that eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment unto himself, if he discern not the body. Those who take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way, and of course, what's the most unworthy way of all? By having denied the Lord of the covenant by repudiating the Son of God and not doing the will of His Father in heaven. Those who harden their hearts against the gospel show that in taking the Lord's Supper, they were treating it as something common rather than as something holy. This is another very strong evidence, by the way, that the sacraments are just that, sacraments, not just memorials. They actually do something, and here we learn that we are cursed if we abuse the Lord's Supper. Those who apostatize tread underfoot the Son of God, and they count the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified, that is the professing Christian, as an unholy thing. Unholy actually means common. Not as holy, not as set apart, not as special, but just as any other meal. You can take or leave. And then the third thing apostates do is that they do despot unto the Spirit of grace. That's what my translation has You could put it also, they have outraged the gracious Spirit of God. They have insulted the Holy Spirit. And, of course, we remember Mark 3, the discussion of Jesus of the unforgivable sin is committed by what? Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Those who turn against Jesus Christ and have no more sacrifice for sin have not only trodden him underfoot, but they have shown that they treated the communion meal as something common rather than holy. And they have insulted and outraged the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of grace. Verse 30, For we know him that said, Vengeance belongs unto me, I will recompense. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. These are two quotations, both taken from where, Marilyn? Deuteronomy 32, what do we call Deuteronomy 32? The Song of Moses, Moses, exactly. I have a reason for calling on Marilyn. You can find out about that later. In the Song of Moses, these two quotations, 
well, these words are used in the Song of Moses to refer to Israel who will turn against the God who redeemed the nation of Israel. And Moses warns, and he uses this, this language, Vengeance belongs to me, I will recompense, and the Lord will judge his people. Interestingly, in verse 36 of Deuteronomy 32, where we read the Lord shall judge his people, there Moses is saying the Lord will vindicate his people. The word judge, both in Hebrew and in Greek, means vindicate or punish. Okay? And in verse 32, excuse me, verse 36 of Deuteronomy 32, the Hebrew word is, is to be taken in the sense of God will vindicate his people, will judge for his people rather than judge against his people. And yet it's in the context where if you go down to verse 40 of the same passage, it's clear that God will also judge his people negatively for their apostasy against him. And so the author of Hebrews cites these two passages from the Song of Moses and applies them to us and then finally says, verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There's the theme right there. The bottom line, it's a fearful thing to fall into God's hands. Don't turn against Jesus. Don't tread him underfoot. Don't desecrate the Lord's Supper. Don't insult the Holy Spirit. Don't turn away from the gospel. Powerful passage, isn't it? Now this brings it all home. One last grammatical observation of great theological significance. The author throughout uses the first person plural. Let us make sure we. He includes himself. The author does not stand as some kind of monarchial bishop above the church declaring, I see these apostate type people and directs these thunderbolts of God's threatening wrath against them. He includes himself in the exhortation. Let us do this. Let's beware that we not do the following. You see why I have to include you who profess Jesus' name, those who are baptized and seem to be living a Christian life, why I must include myself in the same threat against apostasy? Because the author does that to himself right here. We need to take this very seriously. Let's pray. Father, we do ask you tonight that you would awaken our hearts, that we would not slumber to judgment, that you would help us to see that you call upon us, you exhort us to follow you with a clear conscience, with determination, with consistency, with humility, that we would be genuinely sorry for our sins and turn from them when we are aware of them, they are pointed out to us. Help us not to be guilty of presumption when it comes to our salvation. For we know that the wicked one uses that very presumption to lull us to judgment. We do pray, Father, that you would help us to do your will, to truly love you from the heart, that we might follow you all the days of our lives and persevere to the end. We take great comfort in knowing that if you have begun a good work in us, you will perfect it to the day of Christ Jesus, that you will not let us go. But Lord, we pray that all of our comfort and all of our confidence would be rooted in your gracious work in us, that we would not presume upon our own outward profession, upon our own social position, that we would not look upon anything in our own flesh as a reason to think that we belong to you. Do help us tonight to take very seriously the dire consequences and the real possibility of apostasy in those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we ask you to not only awaken our hearts, but then tonight comfort them as well. Teach us that we belong to you as a faithful Savior. Help us to know that the blood of Jesus does open the way for us into your very presence. Help us to cling to him as our only hope in life and death and to know the tender compassion of a high priest who deals gently with those who sin ignorantly and out of weakness. We do pray that you would be glorified in our lives and that if you are not glorified by the sterling moral character of the things we do, that you would yet be glorified by the humble faith we have in the Savior 
that we would lift up your Son, Jesus Christ, in the place of our failed righteousness, that we would honor him with all that is in us. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.